All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship with you all. And it is, um, it is quite the humbling and terrifying experience to be here and um, share the Word of God. I don't know if uh, you have known me for a while, and I share this story sometimes. And if you knew me when I was younger, I didn't like speaking out in public. I am naturally extremely introverted. I remember, I, I like debate and things like that, but I never like speaking in public. I still remember in high school when I first joined the debate team and I got to go up and give a little introduction and my knees would knock so hard that it would make sounds in front. But God has uh, done some interesting things in my life. And so here I am and sharing the word of God with you. As we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Grant Almighty God that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us, until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, let's turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. We'll be reading just one verse this morning. Isaiah chapter 53, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And if you have a pew Bible that you can find in front of you, you can find it on page 575. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're taking a quick break from uh, the book of Hebrews. I said last week that we ended a major section in the book, and I thought that I could take maybe two weeks, three weeks to respond to some of the questions that some of you have had or respond to even maybe general questions that have been posed to the church uh, at large over, you know, whether it's social media or that we saw on TV and award ceremonies and things of the sort. And I thought we could just take this one verse. I won't be parsing the entire verse. I, I think I'm just going to stay on the first line of that verse. And so hopefully this will be a little different, but also I pray that it will be edifying and will give God all the glory. That first line that I want to hold on to during this entire sermon is that, but he was pierced for our transgressions. I just want to hang on this one word as we continue on. It's the word transgressions. That word transgressions is also shown to us in this same book, in the very beginning, in the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, this is what it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Rebelled against me. That willful rebellion 
is the same word that has been translated as transgressions. Every January 22nd, as far as I can remember, people in the church have remembered it as anti-abortion day. And it's remembered as anti-abortion day because it's the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade ruling. January 22nd of this year, however, would have marked the 50th year anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And our Vice President of the United States of America gave a speech in Tallahassee, Florida, urging Americans to now enshrine abortion rights, that means the right to murder a baby, into federal law. And in it, she said this, and I'm going to quote from her speech. So we are here together because we collectively believe and know America is a promise. America is a promise. It is a promise of freedom and liberty, not for some, but for all. A promise we made in the Declaration of Independence that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Be clear, these rights were not bestowed upon us. They belong to us as Americans. And it is that freedom and liberty that enabled generations of Americans to chart their own course and decide their own future with, yes, Ambition and aspiration, therein lies the strength of our nation, end quote. Among what seems to be an almost a countless array in this short paragraph of word jumbles and salads, by the way, bestow and endow mean the same thing, but one major omission from the Declaration of Independence that she quoted was God and life. God and life was omitted, and this was done on purpose, I believe, because it's high time the church start addressing also and responding to the truth claims that the world is making. These are things that we and our children, we, we meaning everybody of all ages here, unless you grew up in the 1600s and went to public education there, maybe all the way up to the beginning of the 1800s, unless you grew up and got educated there, we have been indoctrinated with certain ideas and principles when we grow up in the education system. And I sincerely believe that many of the doctrines that we were taught in school are actually heterodox opinions with claims to be factual through multiple duplicitous methods and schemas. I mention this here only because these supposed trusted claims by our educators have trained our minds to think that somehow if you inject religion into any school of thought, especially the hard sciences, refer to the Copernicus Revolution. People always like refer to the Copernicus Revolution. If you inject religion into any school of thought, it's somehow a lower form of intellectualism. And that isn't something that we should accept. It should be something that we should do away with. And I believe in a lot of places it's already done away with. Don't bring your church stuff here. Don't bring your faith-based ideas here. So even the attempt at inserting religious ideas in any place, imagine bringing up a religious idea in your board meeting, your business meeting. It's to be scoffed at, responded with even trite statements like separation of church and state. 
Because, and let's be blunt here, what should rule us today, what that really means isn't the church, but what should rule us today is the state. I'm going to take a sidebar here about the Copernicus Revolution. I'm sure people already know about this, but people have this idea that throughout history, religion was this really closed-minded, anti-science institution, and the Copernicus Revolution in the 1500s, it had just exploded our knowledge and idea of science. Uh, no one believed like the world was round, you know, things of that nature. And this is untrue. Um, even the great reformer John Calvin would write in his Genesis commentary, this is just a quote from his Genesis commentary, we indeed are not ignorant that the circuit of the heavens is finite and that the earth, like a little globe, is placed in the center. People believe that the world was round. People believe that we weren't the center of the universe. But somehow, we've gotten to a place where we think religious people, ah, oh, they're so dumb, anti-intellectual. And that's why the church should have no say other than in matters of quote-unquote faith, whatever that should mean. And then the state should rule the church. The state should rule over everything, actually. And no body from church or no idea from the church should go anywhere near any kind of ruling authority or any kind of legislation. These claims are made to us and taught to us even from the very beginning of when we start school in elementary school. We're taught that Christians are historically bad people. And I wanted to take these next two weeks in the very least to respond to those claims, to respond and give you what history has said, what the church has recorded, and what the Bible also speaks on, on certain topics, especially hot topics. Christians historically were bad people, is what we are told. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, all wars probably were religiously motivated, and this gave a rise to a new enlightened generation in the 1900s, and this generation should claim and have claimed that to be religious, especially Christian, is a bad thing. And so now this new generation that we are all a part of will be dominated by this ideology. And this ideology is secularism. And even when questions are posed to the church, they are posed to the church with this secular ideology. Last week, there was a music awards show ceremony with one very notable performance. It was a singing duo, one trans woman and the other a non-binary person. And if you have no idea what I just said, that's okay. But this Grammy performance was marked with satanic symbolism, devil horns, cages, strippers, ritual circles. There, were fire, there was fire in the background. Everyone started wearing red and so on. And to me, when I saw clips of that, and people sent me clips of that, I thought it was either one of two things, or both. It could be both. One was it's a blatant mockery of the Christian faith. Or number two, it's an actual satanic ritual that was held at the Grammy Awards. And I saw people on the internet. And people on the internet, when they comment, obviously the people that comment on the internet are only the best minds. But they would say things like, relax, it's just art. 
And we'll get, to, we'll get to that next week about the art in Christianity. But first, let me comment on the devil attire. Does the devil actually wear red spandex? Does he actually have cloven hooves, horns? Does he actually hold a pitchfork? And the answer, obviously, is no. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan is described as disguising himself as an angel of light. He, he disguises himself as an angel of light, but he is truly the evil one. And although he is a creature, he holds extraordinary power. In James 4.7, we're told to resist the devil. So when did red become a color associated with the devil? We see paintings and other depictions of this sort in the Middle Ages. Apparently, the church in the Middle Ages believed in Satan, and in their efforts to resist him, they would make depictions of him to drive him away by mocking him. So they would make depictions of him wearing red, and they would put horns on him with cloven hooves. Why? Because they would make him look like a beast or animal, a pitchfork, so that he would look comical and foolish. They attempted to make fun of the devil in the Middle Ages because they thought that pride was the devil's weakness. And if pride is the devil's weakness, we should mock him. We should ridicule the devil. However, just one generation after that, they didn't get this memo. They didn't get the memo that this was done in mockery of Satan. And contemporary Christians, even today, what has happened in the subsequent generations is we don't take Satan seriously at all. He's a comic book figure. I grew up with cartoons where you see a little red guy on one side and an angel on the other side, and they're like debating each other. And you know, most of the comic book like character or the, uh, the cartoon characters would you know, join with the red. That's what made the cartoon fun, right? No one has fun when you just follow the boring old angel on the right side, that kind of thing. C.S. Lewis would also write in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where a more senior demon is teaching a junior demon on how to demon. And this is a quote from his book. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. Remember, he's training the younger demon on how to demon. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. But fast forward all of, this, all of these things that have happened and fast forward to just this past Sunday where people are dressing up as Satan in a mock worship to him, but dressed in the garb that was made to poke fun at him. Now, in the very least, you start to think that these are confused people. We are living in confused times. One of the performers, Kim Petras, would say, quote, I think a lot of people honestly have kind of labeled what I stand for and what Sam stands for, as religiously not cool, and I personally grew up wondering about religion and wanting to be a part of it, but then slowly realizing it doesn't want me to be a part of it. And so is that the, is that the case? Does religion want nothing to do with people like Kim Petras? 
people who identify as LGBTQ+, would our church accept people in what is now labeled as people from the LGBTQ community? In these first few sections, this introduction that I just said, I mentioned about a dozen questions that the church faces. And I plan on taking these next two weeks to go over what is and what has been thought of as traditional Christian faith and what I believe to be an orthodox response to the secular ideology that, are challenge, that, are, that challenges our faith. And so the number one question that people would ask me that I have faced personally here in this setting is, number one, are we too religious? It comes in different forms. Are we too rigid? You know, are we too religious? This is predicated on the notion that there are extremists in the world. Now, I want to go over what that question is really asking. It's on the notion that there are extremists in the world, and they are all from the religious wing. How can I say that? The simple question we can ask then is, is there such thing in your mind as a religious extremist? And I think the resounding answer here would be yes. Obviously, there are religious extremists. Then I'm going to ask you another question. Is there such thing as a secular extremist? Have you ever heard of that? Oh, this person is a secular extremist. No? Why? Because the general belief is that secularism is sophisticated, it's scientific, it's nuanced, it's complex. But in reality, secularism will and has led to extremism in almost in every front of its fights for their definition of justice, equality, and freedom. What I find odd is that these terms are actually Christian terms. Justice, equality, or equity, and freedom, they're Christian terms, but they have been hijacked and redefined by secularists to not mean what it has historically meant and to mean something else. And so when we start to push up against these new definitions, Definitions that are still changing, by the way, we are labeled as extremists or bigoted. But the question, are we too religious, is meant to draw a picture for you. And that picture is that being overly religious is a negative thing. By the way, you can't be too secular, but you can be too religious. And since these two are pitted against each other, See how society will treat you if you leave the Christian faith and you announce that. As a, and contrast that with, see how society treats you when you join the Christian faith. However, for Christians, we are people that are to be sanctified. That means we are being cleansed and we are being set apart for God's good works. Why? Because this is God's will for us. How? By the word of God. Now, if I said that to you, is that being too religious? If I say to you, our mission is to be set apart, sanctified, to do God's will so that we could do God's works that he has set for us to do, is that being too religious? Is that being too rigid in our theology? 
And take to account what Jesus Christ prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. He prays for his disciples, and this is what he says. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart. Make them holy. Not unholy, but make them holy in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. We may have grown up with something that I also have heard. Well, you need to be a little worldly, right? You need to know a little something about the world. You want conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom would dictate that we have to give in a little here and a little there to make it in this world. What, are you just going to live in a cave? You're going to live in your hovel? You can't be too religious, right? Well, let's define that. What is religion to the Christian? In James 1.27, it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world means to keep oneself from being secular. It is a dichotomy. They have been pitted together but not by the world, but by God. Can you be too religious? That's like asking, can you be too happy? Can you be too satisfied? Can you be too fulfilled? Can you be too religious? Number two, this is something that people say to me, but more people have been killed in the name of God and religion. More people have been killed in the name of God and religion. How often have you heard this? And I'm not trying to deny history. Christians, or at least people who have purported themselves to be Christian, have killed people. But isn't it important for us to know the context of these things? Let's take one example. There is an example that is so popular in the mainstream culture that you can still make references today in modern-day idioms and the like. I'll give you an example. When you come home late and your wife asks you where you were and you say something like this, I was out. And then she'll ask again, out with whom? And then you'll answer, out with friends. What were you doing? Just hanging out. Just hanging out or doing something else, and then you would respond, What is this? The Spanish Inquisition, right? So, what is the Spanish Inquisition? It's originally meant, the Spanish Inquisition was originally meant to combat heresy. This is a judicial inquisition that started in Spain. It was instituted in Spain. That's why it has the name Spanish Inquisition. However, it quickly became a way of consolidating power in the monarchy in Spain. And it's well known for its brutal methods that it employed throughout 350 years. That's the Spanish Inquisition. But let me ask you this. Do you know how many deaths took place over this period of 350 years? Remember, this is attributed to religion, although I, I would argue it's not. But even if it was, do you know how many deaths took place during the 350 years of the Spanish Inquisition? It's about... Even generous, liberal numbers is around 2,000. And while every death is terrible, keeping it in perspective amounts to about six deaths per year. Six deaths a year 
isn't exactly what you would label a massacre. Horrific? Yes. Massacre? I don't think so. But where did the most horrific massacres and genocides take place? When did it take place? It took place in the 20th century. And virtually every one of those genocides, every one of those massacres were caused by a secular regime. How many of you were taught that in school? I don't care how old you are. You could be like 100 and sitting here. How many of you were taught that in school? The greatest number of unjust, horrific genocides and massacres were caused by secular regimes, not religious ones. Communism alone, communism alone is responsible for the deaths of over 100 million non-combatants. 100 million. That means civilians. 100 million civilian deaths. Communism held to this anti-religious, overtly secular doctrines. One of them, that I have mentioned many in the past, but one of them during the Chinese Cultural Revolution was called the Four Olds or the Four Old Things. If you wanted to reshape society, if you wanted to reshape humanity, you needed to get rid of anything that was anti-proletarian. You needed to get rid of the four olds. What were they? Old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. You needed to get rid of the four olds. It began in Beijing in August of 1966, and that is known as the Red August because a massacre took place along with severe torture. Students would attack educators, and it's recorded, they would attack educators calling them, quote, capitalist intellectuals. And a massacre took place in now what we know as Red August. When Lenin came to power, he had to kill thousands of Russian Orthodox priests. They were murdered in the thousands. Churches were either repurposed into communist government facilities or they were just outright burned and destroyed because the first thing that all communist regimes had to do when they took over was try to destroy religion. Too religious? No good. You have to destroy it. And after Lenin died, Stalin take over. And Stalin would take over and rule by terror. This is when millions of Russian farmers would refuse to cooperate with Stalin in the beginning. He had millions of Russian farmers either shot or executed or exiled. The subsequent famine as a result, remember millions of farmers are either dead or they're exiled. There's a subsequent famine. It would go on and kill even more millions in Russia. Didn't matter. He would go on to create the gulag system, which killed even more millions of his own people. And during the half of the 1930s, he started what was called the Great Purge. It's a series of campaigns to get rid of any agitators to the Communist Party. And interestingly enough, when Joseph Stalin actually attended a seminary, he actually attended seminary, that's when he discovered this book by a German philosopher named Karl Marx, and he started to secretly read the Communist Manifesto. 
and he became more and more militant until he rose to power as dictator to carry out this secular ideology. But it was Stalin who said, one death is a tragedy, one million is a statistic. He proved that right though, didn't he? He proved that right to a degree. With one death, you see one death on the news, our whole country writhes in pain and anguish of the injustice of it all. There are protests, even riots that flood our streets. One death. When I tell you about the 100 million deaths that took place because of the ideology, the ideology, by the way, that these current protests and rioters support, over 100 million deaths, no one bats an eye. When people say that religion has killed more people than anything else, that's just a flat-out lie. Either they are sorrowfully misinformed or they mean it to deceive you. And number three, the third thing I hear, I'm not going to go through everything, but the third thing I hear is Christians supported slavery. Christians supported slavery. The Christian faith is the only faith with a long tradition in opposition to slavery. Even in the 7th century, that means the 600s, there's a queen, Batilde, who was a former slave herself, who campaigned for the abolition of slavery. And she especially sought the freedom of child slaves. Anselm of Can- Canterbury in the 12th century would be one of the first high-ranking officials in Europe to renounce the slave trade and would stand up for the dignity and freedom of the human person. I have in the past talked about William Wilberforce, who even in the podcast where, we, where he would come to faith and he would lead this charge to end the slave trade once and for all and sponsoring anti-slave trade legislation that would take place in the House of Commons and would go throughout Britain. These are just some of the people that opposed and fought against slavery in the ancient and modern world. And they fought slavery because their faith was their inspiration. You see, every society in world history had slaves. Every society had slaves. Latin America had slaves. Asia had slaves. Africa had slaves. Everywhere. It was everywhere. Muslims had slaves. Indians had slaves. Buddhists had slaves. Everyone had slaves. The question isn't who didn't have slaves. Everyone did. It was everywhere. The question is who abolished slavery? And the answer is the Christian people of the West. So what other ideas did the Christian faith instill in our modern world today? Well, how about the founding of this country? Going back to the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson would write, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. See, the founders of the country knew this. Rights are given by God. Rights aren't given by the government. You see, if rights were given by the government, guess who could take your rights away? But if rights are given by God, who can't take away your rights? Anybody. Anybody. Rights are secured or protected by the government because they are 
agents and ministers of God. In Romans 13, 6, it says, For because of this you also pay taxes, regard to government, for the authorities are ministers of God, ministers of God, they're messengers of God, attending to this very thing. So what's the very thing that the government ought to attend to? It's in verse 4. Verse 4 of chapter 13 in Romans, it says, For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's those that would go against your rights. Rights given by whom? Given by God. So how do Christians define rights? And if I were to put it in one sentence, it is the ability to carry out God's will. It's the ability to carry out God's will. It is my God-given right to carry out his will. If the government opposes that, then it is my duty and right to let them know that I will still carry out God's will. Take, for example, Acts 5 in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, archegos, and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, the Declaration of Independence would take all these rights that have been endowed or bestowed to us by God, and he would sum it up. You can argue and debate if it was correct or if there's a better way to do it, but he would sum it up into three, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Many of you historians here will know that this is actually from George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights, but he would write it as life, liberty, and property. In Article 1 of the Virginian Declaration of Rights, he would write, George Mason would write, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact derive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. So scholars will speculate that Jefferson wouldn't want to write property because even then he was, or he had this desire to... Um, get rid of slavery, or not kind of enshrine it in our history. So he would change it to the pursuit of happiness. But the first thing to note here is the word life. The word that our Madam Vice President left out of her speech. Life is important to Christians. Why? Because God gave us life. And he gave us life that specifically bears his image this is why we cannot take this life for granted, ours or anybody else's. We cannot abuse other lives. We must care for them as we should ourselves because we are image bearers of the creator. 
We must also defend the rights that have been endowed by our Creator to us, meaning we have rights for our lifestyle, we have rights for justice. This is all going into the area of apologetics, which some of you may love, but lifestyle rights are things like marriage, right? It's who defines marriage? God defines marriage. Who gave us marriage? God gave us marriage. So God defines marriage. He gives it to us. That's why Christians protect marriage. That's why when someone else tries to redefine it, we defend what God has given to us. It's not bigoted to say that marriage is defined by God because it was given by God. You didn't make up the idea of covenant marriage. God did. And so we derive these rights from God, which started in the Word of God, the Bible. Marriage is in Genesis 2.24. We also defend family. It's in Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You see, God blesses his people with children and many children. And this is why I joke, but half joke. If you have a lot of children, I consider you very blessed. And many people who have young children at the time will say, I don't feel very blessed. But I assure you, you are very, very blessed. There was a TV show that I used to watch when I was um, in my 20s. Um, this is not something I'm very proud of, but I would work um, maybe 10 hours a day, I would come home and I would play this video game. My parents can attest to this, so you know I'm not exaggerating or lying. So I would work, I'd come home, and I would play video games, and then I would maybe sleep three hours, and then I'd go back to work again. Uh, these video games are like, they immerse you into their world, right, of Warcraft. Anyway, but then what happened was I would keep on uh, the TV on, so you have something playing in the background, and at that time, at night, I just turned on TBS, and the show was Sex in the City. So I actually watched every single show of this TV show called Sex in the City. The creator and writer of the show has come out recently saying that she actually feels depressed. Why? Because she doesn't have children. That really hits home for me. This is a show that kind of glamorizes sex as a single person, that you don't want children. Children... Like, they, they're the one, they're baggage. They'll hold you back from you living out your best life. And yet, here is this person who seemingly has everything in the secular sense, but feels bereft of true blessing. Because we see in the Bible, God blesses his people. And when he blesses people, he blesses them with children. In other words, we say in our vernacular today, we could say we have the right to a family. And that's why China's one-child policy was a disaster, which we are already, in one generation, seeing the results in real time where there isn't a workforce big enough to carry out the continued growth and the size of the economy that they want. But more importantly, more importantly than that, it was an affront to God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And this is the wrath of God for those that disobey. There are other human rights that we derive by God's justice, right? That, that was lifestyle. This is God's justice. For instance, when he says, you shall not kill, that means what? That you have a right to live. You can't just go around killing other people. 
the Christian stance on life, when we say that we are pro-life or we are for life, whatever the case is, it's not an emotional one. It's a biblical one. And it's one that we keep as we fear and love the Lord because we want to keep his commandments. We get it. It's good. When you have been sanctified, when your mind has been renewed, when it's continually being transformed to understand that all his laws, his dictates, what we see in the word reflect his character, and you love God. You see that the laws are good too, and we follow it, and you see blessings flow down because that's who our God is. He's the source of that blessing. There are others that I won't get into this morning. You can do that in your smaller groups, but things like you, you have a right not to get robbed. Where's that from? You shall not steal. Things like that, right? Although, I don't know, people might, I don't know, people might challenge that today. That's crazy to me, right? You have a right not to get robbed. It's in the Bible, okay? But all of this is to say that we protect what we have been given because it is God who commands that we do so. And when we do so, the reason why it is so glorious is that this is God's intent for us to live out this order. True beauty of created order is revealed when we live it out and we see God's character shine through creation in that way. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That emphatic he is there, meaning in the Hebrew, it's one person. And it was one specific person. He was pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions is a willful rebellion. Before you knew Christ, you also admit to this as well. We willfully rebelled against God. There was no other way out. When you willfully rebel against God, there is a natural repercussion that comes back. Just as it's done in physics, right? There's the equal opposite force that comes back. If you willfully rebel against God, you are fighting against an immovable force. And that will come to our uh, punishment but he was pierced for our transgressions means even though we deserve what, has come, what is coming to us. All the wrath, all this disorder, this deconstruction, this decreation that everyone is for some reason reveling in, all of this is what's going to lead to our ultimate demise. Not just for our nation, but every single human life will be crushed, will be, will be pierced because of this willful rebellion. But instead of that, we see that God sends us a means by which we could be saved. He is pointing to our Lord and Savior. This is the one that we point to in every single part and element of our service. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of us being pierced for our willful rebellion, it's Jesus who was pierced for our willful rebellion. Who would do that? Why would you do that? Would you do that? I'll tell you what kind of person I am. If someone accuses me of something that I have not done, I am most offended. I am most outraged. I take umbrage. How dare you accuse me of something I have not done? I am not guilty of this crime. But Jesus wasn't guilty of our crimes. 
but he took on our transgressions as if it were his, and he was pierced for them. He took our punishment so that we would not be punished. You see, this isn't just individualistic. This is corporate too. When we're talking about a peoples that rebel against God, people sometimes take this too individualistically. It's societal. It's communal. It's also corporate. He would understand that when we continue to rebel against God, it affects all of society, starting with the self, to the family, to the community, well, you see, when he was pierced for my transgressions, that now has been changed. What has been changed is my transgressions are placed on Jesus and his holy attributes, his pure life is now attributed to me. So what was expiated to him, his life becomes expiated to me. It comes to me and now I am renewed. I am justified. I am being sanctified. And so what happens from the self goes outward now. And now that's why families are changed. That's why communities are changed. It goes outward and outward. This is completely different from what the world tries to tell you. They want to reshape man or humanity by reshaping society first and trying to bring it to the self. And that's why we see such pain and horror that's happening, such nonsensical stuff, like nothing makes sense to so many people because you're trying to do what isn't to be done. That's not how things work. And so when he was pierced for our transgressions, it's used to show us that he suffered for our sake so that we wouldn't have to suffer, yes, but we would also then live the life that he wants us to live. We aren't just saved from something, we're saved to something. And what are we saved to? We're saved to live the life God had originally wanted us to live. Not a life of rebellion, not a life of re uh, willful rebellion, but a life of obedience, a life that glorifies God. A life that says soli deo gloria and will continue to live out with every breath that we take to give God all the glory. And then you see fulfillment. And then you see blessings. And then you see happiness take place because this is God's will for us. I'm very saddened when I talk to people and I talk to numerous people about the faith outside of here, of course, and they have been convinced that if I go to church, this is going to be bad. They're going to try to change me. I can't live the way I want to. And I say to them, you're not even happy now. I'm not sure what you're complaining about. The Lord is there to save us from what we have coming to us. And when we place our faith in him, it's God who transformed the heart. And it's not us that we go, you know, kicking and screaming into obeying his will. We joyfully go, worshiping him gladly throughout all our days for what he has done for us because it's he who opens our eyes to the truth. Do you see that? And if not, ask God to open your eyes so that you would see the truth and the beauty of God's word and that you would no longer willfully rebel, causing transgressions, but now you would live according to the will of God, giving him all the glory. Like I said, we'll continue on this topic next week as well. 
But I really wanted to emphasize this. We look to Jesus Christ not just as some cliche kind of something that we go over and over again. It's just a humdrum thing. Say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We look to Jesus Christ because as we continue to look on him, as we continue to worship him, we see this myriad. We see this infinite beauty that is given to us as we are invited into communion with Jesus Christ. And that is just something that would take words out of my mouth. This is something that I love doing. I particularly enjoy waiting and looking forward to the communion of saints, to come here and worship God with you, to share the word of God, to hear the word of God preached, to sing the word of God, to pray the word of God. And this is what I also encourage you to do, for it is by hearing that you have faith. So continue to ask the Lord to open your ears so that you can hear what God is saying in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we could go over and remind ourselves of what your son has done for us. We for forgive us, O oh God, where we took it so simply, almost in a trite manner, that you just died for us when what you have done was immense. It was heavy. It was truly terrifying what you took from us, the punishment that we deserved. And so now, Lord God, we pray that as our ears are open and our eyes are open, that we would now reflect this gratitude and thanksgiving back to you in worship in our daily lives. We thank you for calling us your people, and we pray that we will live to do your will for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.